Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them and turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. While you turn there, I'll say a few words. Lament and sorrow is something that every person who lives beyond the age of two can remember. And the experience of grief and heartache and tension and all the things that are involved in sorrow are something that each one of us knows. Sorrow over all kinds of various things. Eternity will show that the worst kind of sorrow is the sorrow that comes from being forsaken by God. We have sorrow over a totality and a plethora of things. Sorrow over miscommunication, and over bad decisions morally, financially, and, and familially. But the sorrow that Psalm 22 brings is a sorrow that is beyond all other sorrows. It is the sorrow of being forsaken of God. And when you open your Psalter, there's all kinds of laments. But this one is a pinnacle of lament, as it is only truly matched by Psalm 88, in which he says of the Lord, where's your covenant promises? Darkness is my only friend. And so Psalm 22, we're going to open the psalm and try to learn what the psalmist tells us about sorrow. Let me pray, and we'll uh, jump into the passage. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for a Savior who Himself was called a man of sorrows and who is acquainted with our grief. Lord, there is none other who can sympathize with us as He can. And so we pray, open our eyes to see the Savior here and our ears to hear His call, that we might know His heart, and that we might know His love for us. When we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Psalm 22, hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. 
Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potter sheared. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. Amen. This is the reading. Well, brothers and sisters, I have a proposition and two points today. And I know what you're thinking. How on earth? Hang in there. We're going to do our best. But a proposition and two points. Humiliation precedes exaltation. Humiliation precedes exaltation. And we see the sorrow of David, point one and the salvation of David. Humiliation precedes exaltation and the sorrows of David and the salvation of David. Let's see humiliation preceding exaltation in the sorrows of David. See that little subscript above verse 1 in your Bible. He writes, to the choir master, meaning it's to be sung. According to the doe of the dawn, sung in the morning, a psalm of David. The most peculiar thing and the most particular thing for exegetical emphasis is that you grasp the writer here. He puts his name upon it, a psalm of David. And it tells you, we know a lot about David, but it tells you who it's pointing to. In many ways, We see David's life and he is imaging someone who will come and fulfill his shadows. And that someone is the greater David, the Lord Jesus. But first, we're going to consider the original context and how David wrote this. 
and then we're going to apply it to the greater David. And so I want you to keep your Bibles open, and I'm going to survey the passage, and then we're going to kind of dig down on a few things in Psalm 22, because the chances of me covering 31 verses are unlikely, as you probably know. Two and a half verses in Sunday school, 31 verses in the evening. No, not today. But we're going to survey, and then we're going to dig down. So I want you to just look at the first 21 verses in your Bible. I want you to see a few divisions. There's three cries and three appeals. Each cry is followed by an appeal in Psalm 22. The first, he says, in verses 1 and 2 is the cry of silence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cry, but you do not answer. And then he appeals, an appeal to history. Verses 3 through 5. In every appeal you can see because he distinguishes it by a certain mark. Notice how verse 3, verse 9, and verse 19 uh, begin. He says, yet you are holy. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. When he goes to make his appeal, he has a cry. The cry of silence, the cry of scorn, and the cry of subjugation leads him to appeal to his maker. And I want you to grasp David's perspective of his suffering. That though he feels forsaken, the greater David has a greater reality that we'll speak of, but the the, the lesser David feels the forsaking of his God, but he knows his God. And that his God does not leave him. And so what does he do? He appeals to him. And his appeals are very striking. He has the cry of silence, one and two, and an appeal to history. In verses three through five, our fathers trusted you. They trusted and you, and you delivered them, right? Then he has verses six through eight, the, the cry of scorn. I'm a worm and not a man. I'm mocked and their mouths, they wag at me. They, they, they mock me with things like the Lord delights in him. Let him deliver him. And then he appeals again to experience. He says, but I look at my history, and from my birth, you caused me to trust you. If you have kept me this long in my life, surely you will not forsake me now. And then he cries again, verse 12. Many bulls encompass me, the cry of subjugation. They open wide their mouths, and and what do they do? They encompass, verse 16, They pierce my hands and feet. They stare and glow. They divide my garments. I am ravished by subjugation. And so he appeals to what? An emergency. Verses 19 through 21. Come quickly to my aid. Don't be far away from me. Save my life from evil men. And then there is the rescue which we'll get to with the salvation of David. But verses 22 through 31, he proclaims how the Lord, actually the end of verse 21, he proclaims how the Lord has heard, answered, and delivered, which is the reality of all of God's people. Y'all got, y'all got the structure in your, in your mind? Cry, appeal, cry, appeal, cry, appeal. Are you suffering? Appeal. Appeal to history. 
appeal to your experience, an appeal to emergency. The whole range of the Psalters, really, like, I feel like lament in every way is, is grasped by Psalm 22. But let's kind of dig down and look at verse 1. You have perhaps known this verse, the totality of your life, as long as you can remember, because it is well known. Verse 1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Notice two questions and two, and two cries. The first two cries, my God, my God, is followed by two questions. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? This is the cry you make when the heavens are marble and the earth is granite. When you feel as though no one is hearing. And perhaps you know that sorrow when you pray and you get up and there is no joy. There is no deliverance. And you're still in sorrow. You'll notice that he says, my God, my God. It's, he cries twice as though to take both hands and, and place them upon the altar that he might not lose his grip. And he appeals here. I'll just go word by word here and grasp this first question. I want you to know he does not cry in the midst of his suffering. He does not cry to his mother. He does not cry to his spouse. He does not cry to his child. He cries to his God. And there is a lesson there. To whom do you go in your sorrows? He says it twice. Not only for his own soul's sake, but as instructing you and I on where you ought to go with these feelings. See his first question that he asks the Lord. Let's take it word by word. He says, why have you forsaken me? Why? What is the great cause of such strange fact that you would leave me? Give me some reasoning, the psalmist says, concerning why it is this way. And he says, have. My present reality is a great mystery. Have. You are my God, but you haven't saved me. Shouldn't my salvation surely have come by now? Why have you? I can understand my friends forsaking me. I can understand timid Peter. I can understand traitorous Judas. But you, my God, my faithful friend, how can you leave me forsaken? If you were chastising me, this would be different. But forsake me. You have left me for utter destruction. It is not discipline. You are giving me over to death. And he says, me. And you can hear the Savior 
I am innocent. I am obedient. I am your suffering son. How can you leave me? For me to perish at the hands of such evil. David's lament brings all sorts of questions with the words that he asks. Why would you forsake me? In David's context, you can imagine in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord said, I, I, I give you a promise. You will reign forever and ever. And here David is in the midst of whichever suffering he finds himself. And he says, how can the Lord forsake his promise to me? But how much more the greater David? The one who truly is to reign forever. The one who has never done wrong. Who always did what pleased the Father. How could the greater David ever in his life and his humanity ask a question like this to his father? Why have you forsaken me? In reality, the first David did not have the totality of what the psalm embodies. The first David did not taste death as is described here, pierced in his hands and feet. The first David would not go all the way into the grave in order to fulfill the psalm. But it's re realized in the greater David. Jesus, who in Matthew 27, 46, begins the quotation of the psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who offered up prayers, Hebrews 5, verse 7, with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. Jesus, who in verse 7 of the psalm was mocked. Jesus, who was said to be the one who trusted, who had no one to help Him. Verse 11. Jesus, the one who encompassed, was encompassed by those who acted like animals. Matthew 27, 41, 42. Jesus, who in verse 15 of this psalm, my strength is dried up like a potter sheared, whose tongue stuck to the roof of his, of his mouth as he thirsts. John 19, 28. Jesus, the one who had his hands and feet pierced. Verse 16. Jesus, the one for whom they cast lots for his garments. Verse 18. We have a Savior who embodies the psalms lament like none other. And what does that mean for you and I? To have a Savior who has suffered in this way. It means that you have someone who can always sympathize with you. You have a priest who has been touched in every way with your afflictions and can care for you. The Puritan said, and I've said it multiple times, a Jesus who never wept could never wipe my tears away. You have a Savior who is touched with your humanity. And there is none other who can care for you like Him. You can ask questions 
deep theological questions about this psalm. And I find some extremely helpful. Why is Jesus crying this first line? Why have you forsaken me? He did nothing wrong. John 16, 32. He says, I'm not alone because the Father is with me. And so how can Christ be forsaken on the cross? Or in what way is He forsaken? The, uh, the, div- the divine nature cannot be separated where the first person and third person exist without the second. And you say, well, Jonas, how is Christ forsaken? He's forsaken in this way. He is forsaken not in His divine nature. He is forsaken in His humanity. Not in His deity does He cry. But in His humanity, Jesus in His humanity, bore what we ought to bear in our humanity. The wrath of God. And why is He left? And why is He forsaken of God? In order that you might never be. Matthew 28, 20, what does Jesus say? Behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Christian, you will never experience what Christ has experienced here. The feelings may be there, but the reality, never. The Lord will never leave His people. It is for this very reason He has left His Son on the cross, that you might always know what it is to be received and accepted. Now, humiliation precedes exaltation. We see that in the sorrows of David. And we see it in the salvation of David. And if you're wondering, we're running out of time, hold fast. This is a shorter point. But in verse 21, notice how verse 21 ends. He says, You, the Lord, have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, depending on your English English translation, you may have, you have heard me, you have rescued me, or you have answered me. Now, in any case, the best translation, here you get the Jonas translation, is answered. And you say, Jonas, why? Because in verse 2, he uses the same word as verse 21. He says, "Oh, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer me. And then verse 21, you have, same word, answered me. You cry by day, but here we see the answer comes. David received an answer. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that encouraging for you and your sorrows? And even Christ received an answer, didn't He? Though the the heavens were stone to the Lord Jesus on the cross, He still was answered on the third day, wasn't He? as he came victoriously from the grave. And humiliation precedes exaltation throughout your whole Bible. I'll give you a two-minute snippet. If you think with Abraham, he waits decades for the child of promise. Humiliation preceded exaltation. If you think Joseph, Joseph beaten, sold by his brothers, wrongfully accused, thrown in prison, forgot by the baker... Humiliation preceded 
exaltation. Think of Job. Job, who loses all his possessions and his family in a day. What you want. But what does it say at the end of Job? The Lord restored his fortunes and he multiplied them. Humiliation precedes exaltation. And this could be found for you and I as well. It is a matter of very short time before we realize living and following a crucified Savior with any humiliation that brings, as Paul says, will not be worth comparing with what eternity will bring. And it was true for Jesus. Was it not weeping and then joy for our Savior? Was it not Jesus who said, John 12, 32, When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. I'll be lifted up on the cross, humiliation, and then I'll draw all people to myself, exaltation. Is it not Jesus who has spoken of in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross? But then it says, Therefore God highly exalted Him. Humiliation, exaltation. And time would fail us to continue on these lines. But I want you to see the last verse of this psalm. It ends in a glorious way. He says, verse 31, They, that is the posterity, the children, shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. So many things to say, but particularly... The king described in the psalm, who is greater than David, is so great that he is to be told to people who are not yet born. His worth is immeasurable. And what do you proclaim about this son? His righteousness to a people yet unborn. What are we proclaiming? That he has done it. And this is just lovely. In your Hebrew text, there is no word, it. And most scholars will say it should read that it is finished, that he has finished. And isn't that fitting for how Psalm 22 would end? That Christ has fulfilled everything for us, that we might never be forsaken. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Son of God and we thank You for His love that is beyond measure and full. And we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.